Hello and welcome to Resources Radio, a weekly podcast from Resources for the Future. I'm your host, Daniel Ramey. Today, we talk with Jamie Van Nostrand, who was formerly at West Virginia University, where he was the director of the Center for Energy and Sustainable Development and professor of law. Since May the 1st, he has been the chair of the Massachusetts Department of Public Utilities. Jamie is the author of The Coal Trap, a book that explores the recent history of West Virginia's dependence on coal as a source of jobs and electric power generation. Jamie takes a critical eye towards the state's reliance on and promotion of the coal industry over the last decade or so. He'll share his views on why policymakers have been so supportive of coal and how those decisions have affected electricity consumers and residents of the state of West Virginia. Stay with us. Jamie Van Nostrand, welcome to Resources Radio. Thank you, Daniel. So, Jamie, we're going to talk today about uh, a really fascinating new book uh, that you've recently published about coal in West Virginia. But before we do that, we always ask our guests how they became interested working in energy or environmental issues, and especially working on issues in West Virginia. So I'm curious about how you developed an interest in this topic and whether you grew up in West Virginia or anything like that. Sure. I became interested in energy and, and environmental issues. Uh, my father was the chief utility regulator in Iowa when I was growing up. So I was born and raised in Iowa. Uh, he was a rather high-profile chair of the Iowa Commerce Commission, now the Iowa Utilities Board. So I grew up as the son of a utility regulator and just more or less followed in his footsteps. I got a, a degree in accounting and economics and then my law degree. And then I got my training learning how to utilities are regulated when I went to work for the New York, New York Public Service Commission for five years in the early 80s. Transitioned from that into a law firm practice, moved out to Seattle and Portland, and spent 22 years out there, and then migrated into law school teaching, went back to Pace Law School in White Plains, picked up my LLM in environmental law, and I also headed up the Pace Energy and Climate Center, which is an environmental NGO in New York, so pretty much morphed from being an energy lawyer into an energy and environmental lawyer. I had a chance to come to West Virginia in 2011. Uh, the dean of the law school wanted to start this Center for Energy and Sustainable Development to have a little bit of an environmental perspective on what is obviously a, a long history of extracting in the state of West Virginia. So I've been at WVU since 2011. Oh, that's really interesting. Um, I don't think I've ever heard of multi-generational regulators. <laughs> that's pretty great. <laughs> it's pretty it's pretty wonky. But I mean, it, it, it came in handy. Well, it's, it's just a, it's a nice feature of me taking the job as the chair of the Massachusetts DPU. Um, since my dad did that for eight years in the 70s, it's, it's kind of a nice bookend to my to my career, I think, is to take a job like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's really cool. So, um, so Jamie, let's, let's talk now about your book, uh, The Coal Trap, which we will have a link to in the show notes so people can check it out. And the book explores trends in the energy sector in West Virginia from, I think, the, roughly the time period 2009 through 2019, so you know, roughly the last decade. But um, I'd love it if you could give our audience a little bit of historical perspective on West Virginia's coal industry. So can you give us a sense of like when did mining start at large scale and how important did it become for the state's economy? It's been very important to the state's economy for, geez, decades. Um, 1742 is actually the year that coal was first discovered in the state, but then the, it began to be mined around 1810 and then really scaled up once the once the railroad started hitting the state in the 1880s. But it, it's, uh, and then, and then since then, it's, it's the, the numbers of, of, of miners employed in the business have really ranged quite a bit. At, a, at one time, 1940, that was the height of employment. There was 130,000 
coal miners employed in 1940. And, and then, then we had the introduction of the continuous miner. Um, the mechanization in the coal mining industry actually resulted in increased production, but reductions in the number of miners. For example, the highest year for, for coal production was 181 million tons in 1997, but the number of miners it took to do that had declined to 18,000. So we talk about the loss of miners in the coal industry and, and, the and the mining industry, the coal industry likes to blame it on environmental regulations and government regulations. It's actually mechanization, um, just the continuous, continuous miner underground and then mountaintop removal, which simply doesn't take as many miners to produce, as, to produce the same amount of coal. More recently, that figure of the number of miners is, is, is fewer than 12,000 in West Virginia. Yeah. Yeah. So, wow, like an order of magnitude change that's pretty amazing and um and then you get out to the west and like wyoming and the, there it's even more mechanized and there's even less labor required to um produce yeah coal. The, the powder river basin in wyoming just it's just a huge seam of coal you're pretty much just scraping the earth off the top and getting in with big large pieces of equipment to extract the coal but that's they really took over in terms of providing thermal or steam coal for electric generation. A lot of it was coming from the Powder River Basin just because the cost of extraction was so much lower than the Appalachian region. Right, right. And the lower sulfur content, right? Which exactly. Which is part of the result of the Clean Air Act. We've talked about that previously on the show. Yes. Yeah. The Clean Air Act amendments in 1990 resulted in the utilities blending in a lot of coal from the Powder River Basin because it was lower sulfur. Yeah. Great. So, um, so that's all – some historical background, hopefully giving people a little bit of a flavor of of trends over time. Uh, but as I mentioned, your book really mostly focuses on the last decade. So can you um, give us a sense of what some of the big headwinds that coal faced during the period that your book covered and you know which ones were the most important? And then as coal was facing those headwinds, how did state policymakers respond? I think the biggest headwind that, that – um hurt the coal industry was was the shale gas revolution, which is one of the reasons I started the lost decade in 2009. It really started happening quite a bit in 2007, 2008, the Marcellus Shale region, which underlies a lot of West Virginia and, and Western Pennsylvania and Eastern Ohio. That was, the, the term was overused, but that was really a game changer in terms of generating electricity. Um, the cheap, cheap and plentiful natural gas forced down wholesale prices. Then you had some te technological breakthroughs in terms of, of high-efficiency combined cycle combustion turbines, which generate the electricity from natural gas. And it really pushed wholesale prices down, and, and coal plants were just basically out of the money. And we have very competitive wholesale markets in the Mid-Atlantic region, PJM, which operates out of Valley Forge, Pennsylvania. And so all these coal plants, which typically would sell their excess power into the wholesale markets, that was no longer competitive. Um, that was the biggest headwind, and that by the time we got towards the end of the lost decade, which is roughly the 2009 to 2019, we had competitive wind and solar. I mean, it was utilities that were looking for new generation um, were finding it was cheaper to build new wind and solar with battery storage backup than it was to run existing coal plants. Yeah, so really big economic headwinds. And as you mentioned earlier, you know, sometimes people point to federal environmental regulations as a major driver of the downturn in coal. How substantial uh, do you sort of see those uh, in the real world? It was certainly a, a driver of what became the narrative of the war on coal, which is one of the main motivations for me writing the book was how politicians in West Virginia really chose to blame it all on Obama and Obama's job killing EPA. 
um, rather than rather than doing what we elected them to do, which was to manage the state through a transition. I mean, we knew once the shale gas revolution happened in, in the late 2000s that it was going to be, the future of coal was going to be very uncertain and was going to basically begin a rapid decline. And instead, let's blame it all on Obama's job killing EPA. Um, certainly the MATS rule, the mercury and air toxic standard rule that was adopted in late 2011 and took effect in 2015, 2016, by the time you got the extensions, that resulted in lots of coal plants closing. Um, but it was it was really the economic forces, the, the decline in wholesale market prices. You know, the Clean Power Plan, which is Obama's rule for regulating greenhouse gas emissions from coal plants, you know, that never took effect. Um, the Congress and, you know, senators all would all talk about the Clean Power Plan. It, it, it you know, was stayed by the U.S. Supreme Court pending the outcome of the litigation. So, um and, and then there's studies out there. I think Columbia Global Center did a really nice study that, that looked at what, are, what were the drivers of the demise of the coal industry. Well, number one is, is cheap natural gas. Number two is, is um, more cost-competitive renewables. And way down on the list, a, a very small um, driver were, were the environmental regulations. It was, it was really, really exaggerated in West Virginia because it was a convenient means of blaming Washington for the demise of the coal industry when it was really natural gas and renewables. Yeah. Yeah. And there are a number of other uh, studies in the economics literature that that basically come to that same conclusion. Um, so I'm curious now if you could talk a little bit about how state policymakers responded to the downturn. Like what tangible steps uh, did you see them taking and, and, and why do you think they were taking those steps? Surprisingly, even though West Virginia calls itself an energy state and Senator Manchin certainly talks about an all of the above energy strategy, there was no embracing of of natural gas. We're sitting on top of what is now the largest natural gas reservoir in the country, in the Marcellus Shale. No utilities in West Virginia um, transitioned to natural gas. And in fact, what the policymakers did was double down on coal. Um, one thing I write about in, in the book, both American Electric Power and First Energy, they're the two major utilities that operate in the state, they had merchant coal plants, in other words, plants that sell into the wholesale markets. The risks of profit or loss are borne by the shareholders, not by ratepayers. They saw once the shale gas revolution happened and, and wholesale prices declined so rapidly, these coal plants were losing money. So their strategy was, let's put them in the regulated rate base in West Virginia. And so you had three coal plants that were moved from merchant operations where they were losing money and those losses were being borne by the shareholders. They moved them into the regulated rate base in West Virginia. The Public Service Commission approved each of those three deals. That was a big driver of the large rate increases that we suffered during between 2010 and 2020. When we're taking those plants that are obviously losing money from the shareholders, the outcome's not going to be any better if you can be better for the shareholders if you get rid of those plants and put them on the ratepayers. So now the ratepayers are bearing those those losses. So it was pretty incredible because most utilities around the country were moving away from coal as rapidly as they could. You had coal plants being sold for pennies on the dollar, and we're taking them and doubling down and putting them in their rate base and, and basically putting them on the backs of the West Virginia rate pairs. That was one huge response. Um, the, other, the other things were just, um, you know, we, the state repealed its renewable portfolio standard in early 2015. Not that it was a great renewable portfolio standard to begin with, but it sent the message that we are gonna we're gonna get rid of anything that looks like it might cause harm to the coal industry and and promote renewables. So there's there was never any policy at the state level that that really embraced either natural gas or or renewables. Um, it was all about the coal all the time. Hmm. 
That's really interesting. And I, I'm curious if you could say a little bit more about the rate increases that you mentioned, uh, you know, over what you call the last decade. Um, and, and also, you know, during that period, there were lots of coal plants around the country that were closing down because of cheap natural gas prices. I'm curious if, um, we saw those same closures in West Virginia or they just kept operating because they were able to, to go into the regulated rate base. A little bit of each. Um, my calculations showed that between 2008 and 2020, um, electricity prices in West Virginia, the average retail electricity price, increased at five times the national average because you had utilities around the country that were embracing low-cost natural gas, improved technology in generating electricity from natural gas, embracing renewables, and taking advantage of these technological breakthroughs that were happening in natural gas and renewables. We didn't get any of that in West Virginia. So, and instead, we took on, like I say, we took on three coal plants. So that resulted in massive rate increases over that, over that period of time, literally faster than any other state in the country and five times the national average. We did have some closed down because of maths, because, you know, frankly, utility has to look at, does it make sense for us to invest in this scrubber technology? Um, to, to, to keep this, allow this plant to keep running. And most, most of the times it did not, did not make any sense. And a lot of that was because the wholesale prices had been pushed down by cheap natural gas. But then more recently, we have coal plants that are continuing to run, um, even though they're not cost effective for consumers. And what the Public Service Commission has done in the last year and a half is pretty remarkable. Um, you know, utilities do these annual filings to update their power costs. And in the fall of 2021, they came in and their, their capacity factors in their coal plants were in the 30s, 40s, and 50s. Well, there's the capacity factors, how often the coal plant is running, because if it's, if it's displaced by market purchases, you, sh you shut the plant down. And the service, Public Service Commission said, why are these capacity factors at such low levels? They've, they've traditionally been 69 to 70%. And the utilities respond, well, we're able to displace the more expensive coal-fired generation with market purchases from, from PGM. So we back the coal plants down because that's what it takes to save the ratepayers' money. Well, the Public Service Commission, remarkably, in, in the fall of 2021, told the utilities, we don't want you to do that anymore. We want you to continue running the coal plants at their historical capacity factors of 69 to 70% and stop doing things to save money for, for the ratepayers. And these are coal plants that should have been closing down. I mean, one example is the Mitchell plant in the northern panhandle. Um, you know, the, the EPA adopted these affluent limitation guidelines, which required the plants to make additional investment in order to run past 2028. AEPs, American Electric Power, their own testimony showed the ratepayers would be better off by $27 million a year if we don't make these investments and we close down the Mitchell plant in, in 2028. And the commission said, we don't believe your numbers. We want you to make the investment in that plant and the Mountaineer plant and the Amos plant. We want you to make all necessary investments to keep those plants running through 2040. So you've got a message from the Public Service Commission saying, we don't really care about economics. We want the coal plants to continue running, and we want them running at their historical capacity factors, regardless of whether there's cheaper power available in the, in the markets. So the high power prices we've seen, electricity prices we've seen at a retail level over the last decade, is going to get even worse going forward, because coal is simply not a cost-effective way to generate electricity anymore. Yeah, that's really interesting. Uh, I, I want to ask you about you know, what you think was behind those types of decisions. Uh, but just one data point, you know, I'm, I'm exploring electricity price data on EIA. And, 
you know, it sounds like the growth rate of electricity prices in West Virginia was high, but compared to most of its other states, it is still a relatively low cost electricity state. Is that right? It is. I think 2008, when I started looking at the data, we were the lowest, we had the lowest average retail price of any state in the country. And then by the time 2020, I think there were 13 other states that had lower electricity prices. So no, we're still below the national average in terms of the rates. Um, in terms of the bills, we're well above the national average because the other thing that we do in West Virginia is we don't invest in energy efficiency. So we have a lot of big drafty houses and the utilities have no meaningful energy efficiency programs whatsoever. So while our rates still remain below the national average, our bills are well above the national average. Yeah. That's really interesting. So could you talk a little bit more about what you think was behind those uh, regulatory decisions? Is this a, kind of a classic case of regulatory capture? Is it the mining industry that's behind it? Is it the electricity industry that's driving it? You know, what's going on there? Well, the current makeup of the Public Service Commission is um, a woman by the name of Charlotte Lane, who's the chair. She has a, a background as a lobbyist for investor and utilities, First Energy, and as a lawyer for the West Virginia Coal Association. And when she ran for Congress in the state legislature, she was heavily supported by the coal industry and Koch brothers and the utility industry. The other member of the commission is Bill Rainey, the former president of the West Virginia Coal Association. Jim Justice, the governor who's a coal baron himself, appointed Bill Rainey to the PSC in August of 2021. And that's when they started issuing these decisions on requiring the coal plants to continue running. I mean, the rest of it is what I spent a lot of time talking in the book, just about the culture of coal in West Virginia. You know, it's a source of great pride. It's, uh, you know, we, we industrialized America on the backs of the Appalachian coal miners. In a large sense, that's true. So the coal industry still has a lot of influence. The Coal Association um, did the whole Friends of Coal campaign beginning in 2002, which was, which was brilliant. And so there's this tremendous influence in, in the legislature. And when you have a governor who's uh, made his fortune in the coal industry, it, it's just, it's it's almost like what's good for the coal industry is good for West Virginia is pretty much the story through a lot of the lost decade, and that simply hasn't been true. I mean, I think um, the, the Coal Association, the whole Friends of Coal campaign was very clever in sort of taking the image of the coal miner. Everybody loves the coal miner, and, and of course, we should pay a little bit extra in our electricity bills in order to keep the coal miners employed and the coal, coal miners operating. I don't think people have any idea um, how much extra money they are paying in their electricity bills in order to support the coal industry. That's that's why our rates have gone up so dramatically since 2008. The center is currently doing a, a study together with the Sierra Club, working with the consulting group Synapse to to um, basically do some modeling and show how much that coal-dependent path has cost West Virginia ratepayers as compared to a more of a ramped-up renewable path. And those numbers will be pretty interesting. And then we need to do a a marketing campaign, a public relations campaign, just to try to inform people, why do you think electricity prices are going up so much and try to hold the Public Service Commission accountable and the, I guess the governor accountable for appointing these people to the Public Service Commission because they've just done a truly horrible job of protecting ratepayers in West Virginia. Oh, that's that's really interesting. So as, as listeners might be imagining as they're, you know, listening to your perspectives on this, you know, as a professor at West Virginia uh, University, you know, having these messages coming out of your book about, you know, policy decisions made at the state level on energy, I imagine the reception might not have been super rosy in all corners of the state. So I'm curious to hear a little bit about the receptions that you received and like what type of impact it had on, on your career. Well, as I would tell my colleagues in, the, in academia, I'm testing the limits of tenure protection because, I mean, I got 
I got I got tenure right around 2015, 2016, um, and I became much more outspoken in terms of what I saw as the, this false narrative of the of the war on coal. Um, I mean, I've, ever, I've never really been muzzled or anything by the university. That's for certain. I'm sure they've gotten um, calls. I can't say I've been treated particularly. Um, nice. I, I, I think it's going to be very much when I when I go to Massachusetts. Don't let the door hit you on the way out. It's it's not like um, I think they've um, I, I've had good support at at the law school in terms of the marketing director did you know press release when my book came out and all that things. But the, the usual things that happen when when a faculty member publishes a book with book signings and things like that that has not happened in my case. Very little promotion by the by the university, and I really taken on a, a lot of powerful influences in West Virginia and I got to I got to expect that that the university has heard quite a bit about it and they're and they're probably um I've asked for a leave of absence and they know to be able to come back at the end of my term in, in Massachusetts I don't suspect that's going to be granted so it'll be a, a, a I'll be probably cleaning out my office before in, in the month of April so I can get to Boston on May 1 yeah well, and did you get much sort of any direct feedback from policymakers or uh, or the public on the contents of the book? No, I, I've not. I haven't really gotten direct feedback. I did. I did book signing events in in Charleston and in Lewisburg and in Shepherdstown. Um, those were pretty well attended, particularly in Charleston, because there's a you know pretty active environmental community in Charleston and Shepherdstown in the Eastern Panhandle is fairly close to Washington, D.C., so those those people who attended those events were pretty friendly um, to me. We, you know, we did the, when the center did a, a report on West Virginia's energy future that um, back in December of 2020, we actually had an audience, you know, with the with the PSC commissioners to share our findings, and they, they listened politely. Um, but no, I, 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 didn't, I don't really have any, any, sort of direct repercussions uh that that I'm aware of I suspect the university has gotten some but I I've been I've been fairly much isolated from that. Mhm. That's interesting. Well, um I'd love to ask you now a couple questions about um you know the future and as our, some of our listeners probably know the Biden administration and the Obama administration before it uh, has taken steps to try to boost economic resilience in coal communities uh, through – under the Biden administration, they have the Interagency Working Group on, on Energy Communities. And there are also some provisions in the Inflation Reduction Act that are seeking to steer investment towards coal communities. So I'm curious in your view, um, what do you make of these federal efforts and, and how promising do you think they might be to actually support uh, new sectors of economic growth in the state? I think they're I think they're very positive developments. And while I was kind of hard on Senator Manchin in in the chapter of my book, I mean I think he deserves a lot of the credit for some of the some of the provisions that ended up in the Inflation Reduction Act. And the, and the that interagency task force is actually headed up by Brian Anderson, who's the former head of the Energy Institute from West Virginia. So we've got a native West Virginian who's heading that interagency group, um, looking at the coal dependent communities. In the Inflation Reduction Act, I mean, I think this the whole definition, there's a defined term called energy communities, which is basically those communities that are disproportionately affected by the downturn in the fossil fuel industry. Pretty much the whole state of West Virginia, you know, shows up as an energy community. And the result of that, you get an extra 10% tax incentive for making those investments in energy communities. Another big thing in the Inflation Reduction Act, you know, we talk about a just transition, the fact that the clean energy workers tend to not make as much money as your fossil fuel industry workers. 
And so the, the tax provisions are tied to a prevailing wage requirement. So if you want to get the full advantage of the tax provisions, you have to pay your employees a prevailing wage. And there's another apprenticeship piece, which says a certain percentage of that workforce has to be in an apprenticeship program, which really sort of, you know, addresses some of those transition issues of trying to retrain the fossil fuel workers to be um, clean energy workers. So, and that's really good stuff for West Virginia. And I think, I think we're seeing a lot of interest in terms of um, siting energy facilities in the state because of those enhanced uh, tax incentives. Yeah, that that's great. Really interesting. And um, you, you mentioned the energy community's definition. Uh, you know, the IRS is still uh, finalizing how they're going to be interpreting that. And I actually wrote a report with my colleague Sophie Pesek uh, trying to tease out exactly what the definition meant and what it didn't mean. And we did find certainly that pretty much all of West Virginia is right. likely to. I saw be your map. Yeah, I saw your map. Yeah. Yeah. Ironically, <laughs> the, I mean, according to our interpretation. The definition also covers very large swaths of like Washington State and Oregon and Michigan and all these other places. So that so we'll see what the IRS says, but the definition is maybe not as precisely targeted as they intended. Exactly, because you got brownfields in there, and they're all over the place. Um, it's, it's a few layers of that definition. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we could spend a long time talking about that that small provision in the bill, but uh, but we'll save that for another. And time. the other thing, the Inflation Reduction Act. You know, the mansion's very proud of, and you know, it's it's kind of the, all of the above in terms of we're going to treat nuclear and carbon capture and sequestration and hydrogen on the same footing as renewables. I'm just and so there's lots of interest in these hydrogen hubs and and lots of creative uses for what we're going to put the hydrogen to. And that, that there's just going to be a lot of, of money chasing around hydrogen that I'm not sure makes a whole lot of sense in the bigger scheme of things. But And, there's, and in West Virginia, they're going to tout it as a way of keeping, you know, the coal plants open by carbon capture and sequestration. And, you know, I'm we'll, we'll see where the money goes, I guess. By putting it all on a level playing field, we'll see where the, where the money goes. But there's just I, I just feel there's going to be a lot of wasted investment in, in hydrogen and, and deploying it for uses that really don't make economic or environmental sense. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah, I know that that's a, a topic that we're also watching closely. So, Jamie, one more question before we go to our top of the stack segment, um, which is, you know, if you uh, had uh, the ear of the governor or the legislature or maybe the PUC in West Virginia, the Public Utility Commission, what are some of the most important policy changes that you would suggest to them uh, to try to recover from what you call the last decade? The last chapter in my book has several policy recommendations, but I think a, a couple of them as state policies. The first would be to follow the lead of many other states around the country and do a, a clean energy standard. I mean, recognizing that we're starting off very, very carbon intensive, but at least articulating a goal that would put the utilities on a path of decarbonizing over the period of the next 10, 20 30 years, because that sends the sign you've got institutional commitment. We are open for business for for clean energy, it holds the utilities accountable for getting on a path that that gets you there. Um, we we have have had no policy support whatsoever for renewables in West Virginia or or clean energy. The other thing is an energy efficiency resource standard, which a number of states have. Like I said, uh, West Virginia, the American Council for Energy Efficient Economy, does the state scorecard. I believe we're number forty-eight again this year. Because the utilities in West Virginia have no energy efficiency programs, and that's the way electricity prices are going through the roof. But let's at least give the ratepayers the tools to help manage their energy costs by 
ramping up energy efficiency programs. So an energy efficiency resource standard would adopt a goal of we're going to reduce electricity usage 2% a year or 15% by 2025 or 2030. But again, it forces the utilities to come in and implement energy efficiency programs to achieve a certain level of savings. I think those two provisions together would make a huge difference. We're missing out on lots of clean energy jobs, whether it's whether it's renewables, wind and solar, or the energy efficiency jobs are great because you they have to be localized, right? These are the people doing the energy audits and installing energy efficiency measures. We're just missing out on those clean energy jobs in West Virginia because there's no institutional support for energy efficiency in the state. Interesting. And I imagine the housing stock is is pretty pretty aged, right, compared to, let's say, the South or the West. Yes. And that's one of the reasons our, our bills are so much higher than, than the national average is because we have old, old drafty houses that have never been insulated because there's been no programs offered by the utilities to help incentivize that. Yeah. Really interesting. Well, Jamie Van Nostrand, um, this has been a really fascinating conversation and I uh, would certainly encourage people to check out the book uh, and, and learn more about West Virginia and what's happened over the last decade or so. Um, but now we'd love to ask you the same question that we ask all of our guests, which is to recommend something that's at the top of your literal or your metaphorical reading stack that you think is great. Uh, can be something that you read or something you watched or heard. Uh, so Jamie, what's at the top of your stack? I gotta say the the IPCC sixth assessment report. Um, I mean, it's 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 really dense, but um, and, but the summary for policymakers. I mean, the, it's. I think it really reinforces a sense of urgency that we've got to act very quickly. I mean, we're just we. The, the 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 impacts of climate change we're seeing already, and how much worse they're going to get if we can't keep it below one point five degrees. Celsius, um, and I just think it's it's helpful to see those to to see that in what what we're seeing already and what we're going to continue seeing if we don't act quickly. I mean, I know that's going to be a big driver when I get to Massachusetts. Governor Healy has a very aggressive clean energy goal, and it's going to be a lot of stuff going through the Department of Public Utilities to make those things happen. And it's also um, you know one of the things I, I um, was very troubled by when Senator Manchin was chair of the Senate Energy and Natural Resources Committee and. He's presiding over the Build Back Better, which ended up you know, evolving into the Inflation Reduction Act. But it's, what's the sense of urgency? Why are we going to pay the utilities to do what they should be doing already? And I'm like, okay, there's no sense of urgency. What reports are you looking at? Because it's obviously not anything coming out of the IPCC because there is a huge sense of urgency. We have to decarbonize very quickly. And the IPCC report really, really reinforces that. Yeah, it certainly does, and um, and I imagine our our listeners, many of them have have already taken a look at it. But um, but that's a great recommendation to try to be up on the state of the science. Well, one more time, uh, Jamie Van Nostrand, thank you so much for joining us today on Resources Radio for doing this work and and for sharing it with our audience. We really appreciate it. Thank you, Daniel. You've been listening to Resources Radio, a podcast from Resources for the Future, or RFF. If you have a minute, we'd really appreciate you leaving us a rating or a comment on your podcast platform of choice. Also, feel free to send us your suggestions for future episodes. This podcast is made possible with the generous financial support of our listeners. You can help us continue producing these kinds of discussions on the topics that you care about by making a donation to Resources for the Future online at rff.org donate. RFF is an independent, nonprofit research institution in Washington, D.C. Our mission is to improve environmental, energy, and natural resource decisions through impartial economic research and policy engagement. The views expressed on this podcast are solely those of the podcast guests 
and may differ from those of RFF experts, its officers, or its directors. RFF does not take positions on specific legislative proposals. Resources Radio is produced by Elizabeth Wasson, with music by me, Daniel Raby. Join us next week for another episode.